Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. All right, guys, we're going to go ahead and, uh, and get started tonight. Uh, we're going to kind of do a little bit of a review as tonight is our last night, like in specific material. Um, and so before we even do that, I just want to pray for us, our time together, and then we'll jump into where we've been and where we're going and uh, what we're going to look at next week. So let's pray. Father God, you are holy and you are good. God, we do just pray as always that you bless this time tonight, uh, that you would just, you'd speak loudly into the places, Father, where uh, we need your voice, that you would confront the the aspects of our life that we haven't surrendered to you, that you would um, you would change the parts of us that we long for you to change. God, that each moment would be just constantly a new awareness, a new discovery of who you are. And God, ultimately, that would ultimately end up changing us, God, individually, as a church, as a community, God, to becoming more like you, looking more like you. Father, we're thankful that you have invited us to be a part of your family. And God, we pray, come Lord Jesus. And we pray all this through your son's name, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Well, uh, again, welcome back. So this is our last class, again, with like some specific material. So here's what that means. You still have those cards on your table. So if you would, make sure if you have any questions, uh, that you write those questions on those cards. You put them in that black box on that table in the back there. And next week, Mark and Michael and myself will start to tackle through those. Um, But also, if you guys have questions, even next week in general, obviously, you know, we'll be able to take those as well. But if there's anything we can, we can look at so we can like figure out how much time we're going to have to be able to work through some of those, that's always helpful. So if you have those, put those in there. Um, looking forward to that. It'll be fun. But in terms of what we've been talking about, if you remember the first night, we talked about what's in the Bible, right? We talked about the fact that the Bible intersects with the major empires of history, that when we look back through time and we remember these great names, these pharaohs, these, these you know, Alexander the Great, uh, Xerxes, and... and uh, Cyrus, you know, these great emperors, we are reminded that the Bible really intersects with these histories. And actually, the whole time that these empires were moving along and they were changing and the baton was being passed in one way or another, God was actually building a kingdom of his own. And the second night, we talked about why we can trust the Bible, right? Because this is a book that has been written over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years by different authors that span different regions on the globe, and yet they all had a consistent message. They were not all from the same place. They didn't have all the socioeconomic background that, that you know, everybody, they didn't, they didn't share that together, right? But this, they all were writing the Word of God through, the, through God and ultimately coming up with a message of redemption and hope for what God was going to do in his world for his people. And he allowed that word to be preserved through meticulous ways so that we could still have it today and trust what it says to us about who God is and his activity in the world. Then we started to look about who or what the Bible talks about, right? The Bible talks about God. The Bible is written by God and it is about God and it includes us. And so one of the things we talked about was who God is. Like, what does the Bible actually tell us about the author himself? Not just the author of the book, but the author of life, the author of all creation. And what we talked about was the fact that he's Trinitarian, right? He's three persons, one being, 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And this is the God who acts in history to bring about change and renewal and life. And he is all-powerful and he's all-knowing and he's, and he's omnipresent and he's good, right? And we saw especially how he was good when we saw how the Son became incarnate. God puts on flesh. We saw the person and work of Jesus, both how he fulfills what all of Scripture was talking about. If you remember, we walked through just a bunch of different um, events in Scripture, a bunch of different passages that were all pointing to Jesus, how he was going to fulfill every part of what God had promised thus far and bring about the life that we needed and the salvation that we needed. And we talked about how his humanity and divinity was necessary for that salvation, how it secured those things. Then we looked uh, last week, we squeezed so much together because the weather is trying to destroy Joplin right now. Uh, But we talked about, right, the anthropology, the study of man. What is man? We talked about salvation, the Holy Spirit. And if you remember, the major points is that in man, we are made in the image of God. We are male and female. We are body, physical, matter, but we are also soul, spiritual entities. And these things work together. They are intertwined with one another. And those are the same sorts of aspects of our life that God is redeeming through the person and work of Jesus. That's what salvation addresses. Through God substituting himself in our place, he delivers us and he atones for us. He takes on the penalty of of our sin, but he also completely demolishes the bondage and the chains and the slavery of sin and death. He does both things in his life. He pays the penalty. He wins the victory. He gives us an example to follow. He satisfies the debt that we could not pay. He pays the ransom to the, ad, to the adversary who, who had a claim over our life. And he becomes a new representative of human life. He's the new Adam. And now we're found in him. We're descendants not of the old Adam, but of the new Adam because of what he has done through his life. And the Trinity is always working together. So while the Son acted out the saving events to save humanity, the Spirit is what applies those saving events to humanity. We talked about the Spirit, the fact that it convicts and it comforts and it communicates and all the other C words that we talked about, right? And then we've tried to figure out one that worked for equip and uh, we got clad and that works. You know, I looked it up later. I was like, yeah, that'll that'll work. So good job, (laughs) all right? But this week we're gonna look at ecclesiology, which again, Big words. We actually have a lot of big words tonight, but I promise it won't get too into the clouds. Uh, but ecclesiology is the study of the church, the study of the church. And we're going to look at eschatology, which is the study of the last days, end times. What does the Bible say about how this world will come to an end and how a new world will begin? So first, I want to look at the study of the church, okay? Because ultimately, when we talk about the church, this is a fundamental part of the Bible, of what it talks about, especially in terms of who it's addressing. When Jesus is talking about his kingdom, when he's talking about his brothers, in so many ways, this is who, what he is talking about. So what is the church? First off, how many of you guys have gone to church your whole life? Just out of curiosity. How many of you gone to, have gone to church your whole life? How many of you guys started going when you were a kid? How many of you guys started going like when you were in college? How many of you guys started going as an adult? Okay, interesting. That's fascinating. And the point of why church is so significant is what we're going to talk about today. Like, is it possible to be a Christian and not be a part of the church? You know, that's part of the question that we have to dive into. What is the church? Why is it an important part of what Jesus talks about? So what is the church? The first thing is that the church is the covenant people. 
the covenant people. And I'm realizing right now that I forgot my Bible. So I'm just going to have to summarize these scriptures. <laughs> Hopefully I'm close. But you guys have been great so far. At You're like the Bereans, man. You're checking me and making sure I'm on point. So great job. There's always one scripture that's messed up somewhere. So um, the church is the covenant people. First off, let me, again, we've talked about covenant before. It's something I'm very passionate about because to be honest, I feel like like within our day and age, it's kind of become a forgotten concept. But in fact, I believe it's the bedrock by which the entire Bible moves along. It's, it's what the story is founded in. And the whole point is a co- of a covenant is that promises are exchanged, right? Promises are exchanged. And that means that there's a relationship that has been secured by promises. And this is especially true when we think of God, because if God is all good, he's, he can't break a promise. And so if God makes a promise, what does that mean? He's going to keep that promise. That's what Hebrews 6 says. That's why he, he says, Hebrews says, we have an unshakable hope like an anchor for our soul. Nothing will be able to move that. When God makes a promise, it's fulfilled. And when we talk about the covenant, what we're talking about is these moments in scripture where God comes to people and he makes very specific promises. And that means they have to happen. So when he goes to Adam or Noah, or when he goes to Abraham, when he goes to Moses, and they have these experiences with God, right? When, when God passes through the, the pieces of the animal with Abraham, or when he goes up on the mountain with Moses, those are covenant ceremonies. If you remember that God made a covenant with David about the fact that David would have somebody in his line who would be the Messiah, a king that would reign forever. That promise that we're saying is fulfilled in Jesus. The covenants matter because as soon as a covenant is made, it is a covenant that will be fulfilled. And so when we talk about the covenant people, what we're talking about are the people who have received those promises. The people who have received those promises. And so when we talk about the fact that we are, the church is the covenant people, what we're saying is we have received promises. We've received promises from God. And these are for the church. They're not promises made in particular to me or Dan or Adam, right? They are promises made to the church, to the church. And so this is a really fundamental part of what the church is. And it is why I would say you do have to be a part of the church. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean our physical building either, right? Like a physical building is not the church. The physical building is the home of the church. And it's, there are several homes that are, you know, cover the globe of where church comes, they come together and they worship. But the point is that we are collectively the church. We're the covenant people and we're receiving covenant promises. And these texts here describe that. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 talks about the fact that there's this new covenant. Hebrews 8, if you actually look at Hebrews 8, it actually uses Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 to really hit this point home. That the new covenant is with the church. Romans 9 through 11, I think also makes this explicit. Paul is agonizing over the fact that Israel has, that there's so many a part of Israel that have neglected Jesus as their Messiah. He's like, I can't believe like so many have not seen that he is the promise. He's the, or he's the fulfillment of all the promises God made. He's the fulfillment of all the covenants. And he even says in chapter nine, they were the inheritors of the covenants. Like th- this was theirs. This sh- Jesus should have been their glory, their reward, their love, their life. And yet they have forgotten it. But by the end of chapter 11, Paul says, and yet all Israel will be saved. 
And his point there is not to say that there is a distinction between ethnic Israel and and, uh, spiritual Israel, but to say that actually in light of what Jesus has done, we are being engrafted into the covenant people, that the covenant promises were always made to people that were um, spiritual in that sense. And that's what Galatians is about as well. Um, We can get more into that and we will, especially when we talk about eschatology, because that is where some of these lines start to become very meaningful. So just remember that. But the point is we're covenant people. We are inheritors of specific promises. The other thing is that we're a royal priesthood. This is what 1 Peter 2.9 says, that we have been called out, that we are specifically called to be a priesthood. Now, what did priests do? We've talked about these things a little bit, but what did priests do in the Old Testament? They ministered to the Lord. On behalf of whom? On behalf of the people. That's right. Yes, that's right. What else did they do? Yep, they offered the sacrifices. Yep. What else? Yeah. And they also represented God to the people. Okay? And that's the point. We are called to be a royal priesthood, which means not only do we go to people on behalf of God, but we also can go to God on behalf of people. That's what's so beautiful about the church. Like when I go to God and I talk to him, it can be on your behalf. When I go to you and talk to you about who God is, it can be on his behalf because the spirit's in me doing something, manifesting something that I cannot do on my own. And what does Romans 12, one through two say? We are living sacrifices. It is our bodies that actually become a living sacrifice. It's not just a dead animal that we give to God anymore. It's our entire life. And our lives no longer have to be slain, right? There's a power working within us that allows us to constantly be putting ourselves to death for God and others and yet never be taken by, by death in any final, final way. We're the royal priesthood. We're also the temple of God, the temple of God. This is what it talks about in 1 Corinthians three sixteen and 2 Corinthians 6. And really there's several places. The fact that I have the spirit of God means my body is a temple of God. But the fact that you all have the spirit of God means that when we come together, that's something very, very special. The presence of God doing something and engaging in us in ways that we couldn't do just simply on our own. The church is so meaningful in this regard. And do you remember what, like, where would God go to dwell? Where would God go to dwell? What's that? That's right, on the mercy seat, which was in the Holy of Holies. Now, one of the things that you don't get from the English translation is that actually when it calls us a temple, it's not necessarily referring to the whole temple. The Greek word is actually talking about the Holy of Holies. You know what he's saying? He's saying, you are where God's presence dwells. And the only way that that presence could come and dwell there was how? If there was blood splattered all over that place by a sacrifice which cleansed it, that's what Jesus does for you. Jesus' blood covers our lives. Is that grotesque? It should be. Because the sacrifice was immense. There was a price. We were bought at a price. And it was paid in full. 
and the spirit comes and he takes up residence in us and we live a life with him. That's what scripture is talking about. We are the temple of God. Collectively, we're doing something. The bride of Christ, Ephesians 5 and Revelations 21, Revelation 21 talks about this. So Ephesians 5 is specifically showing the relationships between a husband and a wife. And it specifically compares that to Christ being the groom and the church being his bride. And that's an important fact. It means no matter what the church may do, it's still the bride of Christ. Be careful how you talk about God's bride. God's bride may not be perfect in her earthly body, but make no mistake, it is who Christ died for and he has in mind to put her totally cleansed and right. And that's what we see in Revelation 21. A beautiful bride dressed for her husband. It's talking about us. We are going to our groom into the city of God where he has called us to be. We're the body of Christ. Ephesians 1, 22 through 23 talks about this in 1 Corinthians 12 as well. The fact that we actually make up Christ's body. It talks about how Christ is the head of the church. Like he's like the head, right? Where the will is, where the affections are, where the emotions are, where the knowledge and and deliberation takes place. That's, That's Jesus. And we get to be the rest of his body, It's saying that actually by the Spirit of God, we are like hands and fingers and toes and knees and legs. And he's saying it doesn't matter what part you play in the body because every single person in this room plays a little bit of a different part in God's body. But every single one of us is necessary. And that's what it says in 1 Corinthians 12. It says, would you just say to an eye, well, well, you're not as good as an ear. I don't remember what body parts it uses. I think it uses an eye and an ear. You know, no, you wouldn't. You would want both, wouldn't you? You would want both. Sure, we trust our eyes, but man, we'd still like to have our ears, wouldn't we? And that's the point. Like every single one of us make up collectively the body of Christ, which means not only are we doing something meaningful for King Jesus, but it also means that we're doing something meaningful for each other and the entire world. We are his hands and feet. That's what that means. We are the ones going out into the world, trying to bring people into the embrace of the Savior. And sometimes we are literally the arm in which they will experience that embrace. We're the church, we're the body. That's what God has called us to. So what does the church do? What does the church do? We proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus. We proclaim the gospel. And we do this through every single part of what makes up our services. Every single part. The first one is the Lord's table. The Lord's table. Now, just out of curiosity, did anyone call it something different? Did anyone grow up calling it a diff- by a different name? Communion. Yep, communion. Any, anything else? So it's also called Eucharist, um, which is a Greek word for giving thanks. Um, but it's called, that's what, when you hear Eucharist, that's usually in like the Catholic church or at least a high church uh, model, they'll call it the Eucharist, which is giving thanks. And that comes from 1 Corinthians when Paul is actually talking about this meal. Uh, he said, when Jesus gave thanks, right? And that's where that comes from. It's, that's literally the word there is Eucharist. That's what, he's, that's what he's saying. And so that's why it's called that. It's also called the Lord's table. It's called the Lord's supper, right? Uh, there are different names that this goes by. And one of the things that, you know, Catholics will call it as well is like the time of mass, right? Um, which that actually means dismissal. And part of the reason they save that for the end even is when they take that, uh, it's like a way of saying like, we're taking this resurrection into the world. And so they'll save that. It's like the climax of their service is the mass. Whereas like for us, 
what we think is central to our service is the word of God. And so the preaching get, becomes a central focal point of, of Protestant churches everywhere. Not just our church, right? But Presbyterian churches, Methodist churches, Lutheran churches. Well, Lutheran churches, actually, they, they, they would say that the Eucharist is more important, actually. Um, but all of these churches essentially become, they, they make the word of God central in that way uh, because of the way in which they see it. But the Lord's table, the Lord's table. So tell me what, tell, talk to me about the Lord's table. What do you know about it? What is it? It's a time to remember Christ, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else? I mean, that's good, and I, I, I think it's right. But this is where our church actually differs with a lot of other churches of what the Lord's table actually is. So, for instance, in the Catholic church, they think that the bread and the wine, they use wine, actually transform, when it's ingested, it actually transforms into the body and blood of Jesus. And that it's actually a work of, well, it's actually a grace that you receive, and it's actually a way in which God gives you grace. And so it becomes almost a work on behalf of the human that they have to do that, you know, each week, and by ingesting that, they're actually ingesting a physical property of Jesus, and that is actually saving them. It's actually part of their salvation, how that's worked out. The Lutherans, on the other hand, what they would say about the Lord's table is that it actually, um, that it has the physical presence of God, but it doesn't turn into the physical presence of God, which I know is really confusing, but, but it's a very specific difference. And the reason why that difference exists is ultimately because of Aristotelian philosophy. It was becoming very, very popular to categorize reality the way that Aristotle did. And so the Catholic Church adopted a lot, a lot of those things. And so Luther, when he resisted the Catholic Church and started the Reformation, he actually um, went away from that idea um, of, the, of the actually turning into the physical property. Um, and he said, well, the, it's there. The body of Christ is there, but it's, it's more of a it's still in the bread and cup. It doesn't ever transform, essentially. Um, and, and the ways in which he even describes the sacraments is not the same as the Catholic description. It's not something that saves you, but it is something that does something immensely spiritual within you. Um, the other conception of this is what's, what um, Zwingli came up with, which is more of like kind of how I would say we um, use this at our church, which is more of like, this is just a really helpful sign. Like it's, it's like a sign of the covenant really is what it is, right? This, isn't that what Jesus said when he's eating with his disciples in Matthew 26? When he's eating with them, he says, take this bread and this cup. This is, a, this is the blood of the covenant, right? That I'm making with you. Do this in remembrance of you. And so it wasn't necessarily that it had this spiritual quality to it, um, Zwingli would say, but actually that it was just a reminder of what God had done. And in reminding our minds and all of those things of what God has done, it actually allows us to, to put into perspective each moment the gospel, right? We're, we're talking about the gospel. And that's what 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 talk about as well, that it's an allegiance thing. 1 Corinthians 10 says, you can't drink from the cup of demons and the cup of the Lord. You have one king. And every time you take the communion, you're saying who your king is, Jesus. He also says that we're gonna do this because we're proclaiming Christ's death and resurrection until he comes again, Right? 
We're proclaiming that death and resurrection until he comes again. And then there's so many motifs that are in within the Lord's table. So I probably need to move on because I could literally spend a whole class on this. But the point is, I think one of the most important points is looking back to the Exodus as well. The Exodus. What happened in the Exodus, right? The angel of death would come and they would have to slaughter the lamb and they would have to put the door, the blood over their door and that angel would pass by them. They would remain safe. And they would practice, they would have a feast, the Passover feast to commemorate that event. And what they would do is really what we think Jesus was doing with his friends, with his disciples in, on that, that last night that he had with them. We believe that he was having that Passover meal. He said, go find a place to have the Passover meal. And we think that this was a part of it. And so I don't, I don't know if you guys were here. This was several weeks ago and you probably don't remember anyways. But, <laughs> but I, uh, you know, I did a communion meditation, a table meditation that was essentially like asking the question, why didn't they use a lamb? You know, like, why didn't Jesus say like, here's my, my here's a lamb chop. It's my body broken for you. You know, why, why, why did he use bread and wine instead of the lamb? And I think the whole purpose was because nothing would ever have to die again. Not one more drop of blood would ever have to be spilt. It was Jesus and his blood that would sanctify us and cover us totally forever. And so the bread and the cup, they remind us of what happened. His body was broken, but they also are not something that had to be killed in order for us to ingest it. We simply, we, we enjoy the body and, and blood of Christ and the ways in which he covers us. So, all right, I'm gonna move on. Spending too much time. Any questions about anything we've talked about thus far? I should say that too. <laughs> if you don't go to church, will you go to will you if you don't go to church, will you go to hell? Is that the question? <laughs> um, you know, obviously I'm not I I I'm not the judge, right? And uh and so what I can only say is what I feel like scripture calls us to. The question is, if God asked you to do something, why wouldn't you do it, right? If God has, has created something meaningful and special for your life and you choose not to participate in that, I, whether you're going to heaven or hell is not up to me and I have no idea, but I, it seems strange that you would, you would think that there's not life where God calls you. Um, and so... Um, whether, you know, whatever the end result of that is, I don't know, but I can tell you, God wants us to be a part of the life of his church, which again, doesn't necessarily mean, you know, like Christ church, right? It's talking about the life of the people here. And that's more what I would say that we miss out on is attendance on a Sunday morning doesn't mean you're a part of the church um, any more than, than, you know, watching on a computer screen at home, you know? And there are exceptions, there are dimensions in which we can't always quantify these things, but what, what makes you a part of the church is what Christ accomplished for you, but also by the ways in which you start to utilize the gifts God has given you to edify those around you and to bless the world, which I don't think is possible if you're not a part of the church. Um, also, what I would say is that you don't really receive any of the blessings. Like it's hard for me to believe how your spiritual life could be enhanced or you yourself could change. Like not be stuck in your sin if, you, if you're not going to the place where God wants to nourish you the most. The church is the place where God wants to nourish you the most. Um, that's where he says he's going to be. You know, we talked about that with pathways. 
Like there are three places God says, I will always be here, right? He can speak and he can do whatever he wants, but the Bible, prayer, and community are the three places God says, I will be there. And in community, especially when the church is gathering, what I actually liken it to is like a date night. And I don't want to like over-romanticize it, but obviously our worship of God, it happens all the time. And you may have heard me explain this before, but, um, but our worship of God is not singing, right? It's literally a life just simply given over to God, doing what he calls us to do, right? That's what it is. And, in the in, and what I do is I separate that into the informal and the formal. So like the informal is my everyday moment. Like my relationship with my wife right now, I am married to my wife and I'm living as if I'm married to my wife. Every part of what I'm doing, even right now, is still indicative of the fact that I'm exclusively hers and she's exclusively mine. And that's the informal part of our worship, the way in which we live our life in in relationship with God. But when the church comes together, that's the bride. That's date night. That's like we are going out, we're setting a mood, we're, we're changing our environment, we're getting rid of our cell phones, we're trying to just be with the Father as a group of people that have an experience and a relationship and a participation that begins to transcend anything else that this world offers us. And it's, and it's, a, it's supposed to be a moving space in which that relationship and that intimacy is grown and it changes us. That's the whole point of it, um, which is a long answer to your question, but I would say that it's imperative that you be a part of the life of the church, that you have community, that you have people in your life who know you, who can encourage you, who can see you. Um, You know, Tim Keller has said before, you know, to be known uh, but not loved is our greatest fear. To be loved and not known is shallow, but to be known and loved is what it means to be known by God. And it also means what it means to be a part of his church where we can share the worst parts of ourselves and yet not be disqualified from the love and forgiveness that can be shared. There's not many places in our world, especially right now in cancel culture, where those types of conversations can happen and you can still feel like you're a child of God. This place it can. The church is meaningful. So, all right, baptism. (laughs) Baptism is the next one. So baptism, again, is a covenant sign. Um, it talks about the, we've talked about this a little bit last week, so I'll, I'll be quick. But baptism is, again, another way in which we participate in Christ's death and resurrection, in which we're born again, in which we symbolize publicly to the whole world where our allegiance lies. And I think part of the reason why this is even so meaningful for a part of the life of the church is because it's like a marriage ceremony. I think I said this last week. It's like a marriage ceremony where, in my opinion, the groomsmen and the bridesmaids at a marriage ceremony are not just there because they're liked a whole bunch. They're there because they are seeing the promises exchanged, and it's up to them to help make sure those promises are fulfilled. Now, we don't really do that very well in our culture, but that's part of what they're there for. And so like for you, even if you were in a wedding, like what I would encourage you to do is put the anniversary of the person of the wedding that you were in down and just ask them. It's not too late to do that. Ask them like, hey, I realize I might've dropped the ball on this, but man, I would just love to know every time their anniversary comes, how are you? How is your marriage? Like, how are things going? Are you actually continually giving those promises and fulfilling them to your wife or your husband in the way in which God has called you to and in the way in which I witnessed you make them, Right? This is what baptism really is in so, so many ways. It's the church like seeing and celebrating, championing the fact that somebody's coming from death to life and then saying, we're gonna walk with you through this. 
We're gonna do our best to actually make this not a finish line because baptism is not the finish line. It's the starting line. Once we get baptized, we're not good and on our way to heaven, right? Once we get baptized, we're walking together with, the, with, with our church, with our, our family, with our life, with, our, with Jesus as our life, you know, walking us forward. And the finish line is still far off. And so we're walking with each other through that. <clears throat> um, the next one is expound the word, expound the word. Expound the word, which again, this is like when we take scripture and we're opening it up. We're seeing what it says, specifically because we do believe it is the word of God, right? This is where God has spoken. And the truth is he didn't speak it like in our context. He spoke it in somebody else's context. And so what we have to do is be able to unpack that together as a church. And we'll begin to see quickly how God is gifted, like we talked about with hands and knees and toes and fingers, we all perform different tasks and responsibilities and, resp- and roles within God's kingdom. Teaching on the word of God is one of those things. Now, one of the um, things we have to be careful about, even in our movement and even in our church, is that the person expounding the word of God doesn't gain a heightened sense of status because that's what they do, because they're on stage the longest, because they know a bunch of stuff. You still need ears, you still need eyes, you still need feet to walk. They are not the end-all, be-all of the Christian maturity and and fellowship. They're an important part of what God does, but they're not more important of of what you do. And part of our lack, our, our, our ability to impact the world, I think, in as many ways as we should be as the church, is because we outsource the efficiency of God's work to the pastor or to the ministers. Those people are called to do ministry, don't get me wrong, in, in very specific ways, but they're trying to equip you. Like, that's what they feel called to do to equip you to go into the world and do those things where you are in the schools, you are in the companies, you are in the places that I won't get to go. And my hope is that you can have some sort of of, of passion and calling to go into those spaces and start conversations with people and, and offer them hope and life that they would have never known without it. Or maybe that they did know it, but they forgot it or they have become disenchanted by it or whatever the case may be. That's what God's calling you to do, right? Because you're a royal priesthood. You are the one that's also going out. It's not just me who's the priest. You are as well. Um, We sing. We sing. Again, this is a common practice within the life of the church because really what singing is, in my opinion, um, is prayers. It's testimony. It's celebration. It's like a unified idea that we're all saying together at one time about something amazing about God. And music just has this stunning ability to move our affections in ways that few things really do. In fact, I think that's why, I don't know if you guys remember the story, but if you remember, that's why David at first came to know who Saul was, King Saul. King Saul, it says, had this like spirit that was tormenting him in some way. And we don't really know much about what that was, or what was going on. But he basically says, do we, do we know any harp players in our kingdom? You know, and somebody's like, I hear that son of Jesse's pretty good. And so he comes and he starts diddling on his harp and it makes the spirit go away. Like music just does something. It has a quality to it that I do believe is spiritual at some level, which is why I think we don't really quite understand like why certain notes just go together. Like why harmony is possible, right? We know we can say what's happening. We can say that there's these these sound waves that are moving through the air because they're ultimately making, you know, the, the, the particles of oxygen bounce around at certain ways and in certain waves, but we don't know why a C and an E sound good together. We don't know why that is, right? 
but I think there's something spiritual about it. Like there's something meaningful, but that also means there's something spiritual the other way as well. When we say spiritual, it doesn't just mean it's godly. It means that it puts us in touch with something outside of ourselves, and that can also be demonic as well. And so I think it's a reminder for us all that like actually what we consume, even within media, especially within music, it's telling us something, whether we know it or not. And we have to be careful what we listen to. We have to be careful what our minds consume. It doesn't mean that we can't listen to, you know, there are some things you just shouldn't listen to, right? But, but, but it doesn't mean you have to cut out everything. It just means you have to take your thoughts captive. That's what, that's what Paul talks about. We pray. We pray together. And I just put every epistle, because pretty much Paul talks about this in every epistle. Um, but specifically in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, he says this. Acts 2.42 says they devoted themselves to prayer. Um, James 5.13, he says, come together and pray when you find that somebody's um, hurting or struggling. And Matthew 5.44 is when, um, I believe it's when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. But the point is, this is something God wants us to do, that our prayers actually do something. God uses them in amazing ways. So we proclaim the gospel through the Lord's table, through baptism, through his word, through singing about that gospel message and through praying. The only reason we can even pray at all is because of the gospel. It still reminds us of the person and work of Jesus and the application of the person and work of the spirit as we speak to our father. There is so much packed in there. Any questions about that thus far? All right, moving on. We bless the church. What the church does, we proclaim the gospel and we bless the church. We bless the church. And this is what these texts talk about. In Acts 2, 42 through 47, this is like right when the church is beginning, right? The spirit of God has come down. It's done some just amazing things. And then at the end of the day, it says they just start giving away their stuff to each other. And this is what we do as the church. We literally, we see people in need and we meet that need even at the cost of ourselves. We allow ourselves to be burdened so that somebody else can have that burden lifted off of them. Now, of course, we're not supposed to burden ourselves to the point where somebody else has to come free us from our burden, right? But we do allow ourselves to take those burdens from people. That's what Galatians talks about as well um, in Galatians 6. But in 1 Thessalonians 4.18 and Ephesians 4.12-16, uh, that Ephesians 4.12-16 specifically talks about edifying the church. And you know what it talks about in light of that edification? What's supposed to happen? This is where we get our completeness in Jesus from, just so you know. So every time we talk about completeness in Jesus, this text is where it comes from. It talks about the fact that our gifts are all working together, everyone gifted in these different ways. We're all working together so that we all come to the fullness and completeness in Jesus. And that is our life, that is our goal, and that's what we all actually join in, we participate in. And we bless the world. We bless the world. In blessing the world, um, again, we use our resources. We're a light in the world. We should be different than the world. Um, we should be in the world, but not of the world, right? We're salt and light. We bring things to the world that the world doesn't possess on its own, but we also show them hope that the world desperately desires. Um, and we're trying to help them see how those things are fulfilled in Christ. Um, those things obviously can become compromised by our own sin, but the point is more so that the church has been far more successful at this than it has not. And I know that sometimes we feel like there might be times where the church is just not doing all that it needs to do, but we're sitting in this room today because for the last 2,000 years, the church has been a light. It's been salt. 
And it may not be perfect at this. It's still not a, a spotless bride, right? But God is working through those things. He's, that's what he's creating us to be. And we're still accomplishing exactly what God has always desired us to. We bless the world. <clears throat> all right. Any questions about the church at all? Well, I'll say this um, just because I think it's probably helpful. Um, ultimately, when we talk about the church, and especially when we, when we talk about what the church does in, in the world and in, in the church, what most people struggle with is like where they fit in. Like, thanks for telling me I'm a, ne- I'm a knee or I'm a leg or I'm a you know, finger or an eye. But like, what does that actually mean? And here's what I, there's really, in my opinion, there's three different areas in which we serve. And if you guys haven't checked out our Pathways website, like a lot of this stuff is actually on there. We've tried to make that a really helpful discipleship tool. So if you go to cco.church slash pathways, you'll find a lot of this material um, and, and really a ton of material for you to pray through or read scripture through or whatever. But one of the, the three ways I see um, God working in our lives is first off, it's just like felt needs, right? Like if we see the need, we meet the need. And that doesn't necessarily mean we've been gifted to do that. It just means that like we see it and we can do it. And so we're going to do it. And that would be people who, um, you know, like just see somebody like honestly opening a door on Sunday morning. Like that's something that I don't think the spirit necessarily gifted them for in that way. And yet it's something that God uses them for because it's still something that when they come in the door, they experience a, a sense of welcomeness. And you could argue that some, like I think God does gift certain people with hospitality. So you could argue it in some ways that that is a form of hospitality, but I think hospitality extends beyond just opening the door. It also extends to receiving them into your home, receiving them into your life and providing for them a comfort and, um, and a, a, a relationship that they wouldn't have had otherwise. So that's one thing. The other thing um, is an actual calling, an actual calling. Like, have you ever had those questions? Like, what God do you want me to do? I don't know. You know, like, what do you want me to do in your world? And I think that, I'm sure you guys have noticed already that I love Tim Keller, but Tim Keller sums it up this way. He says, this is a great metric for determining uh, what God wants you to do in his world right now. He says, you need to ask the question, how has God gifted me? Like, what skills do I possess? What skills do I possess naturally? You need to ask yourself, what opportunity is around me to use those skills? And you need to ask yourself, what am I passionate about doing? And what he says, and what I agree with, is that usually when those three things combine, that's a calling. When I decided I wanted to move away from worship ministry into more of a teaching role, it was because I was more passionate about this. I, I, I was, um, I had opportunities to start doing it. What I wasn't sure about was if I was gifted in it. I probably annoyed so many people, but this is one of the best ways you can know if you're actually skilled in something. It's just going to the people around you and saying, am I good at this? Like, will you just be honest with me? Going to those people, really this, again, what your church is for, is going up to them and be like, can you just tell me like, you can be honest, it's not gonna offend me, but I just need to know, like, am I actually skilled in this or do I want to be skilled in this, you know? Because again, even within our, our church, there are things that have more status than others. And sometimes we think we wanna do something uh, because of the status that's involved. And sometimes it's actually hard to determine like our heart's motivation for those things. Um, and this is why even when we don't know the will of God, right? We talk about the spirit coming in and helping us when we don't actually, we can't discern those things as clearly as we would like. But the point is what you're skilled in 
what you have opportunity for and what you have passion for tend to be what God is calling you to do right now. And that calling can change. It's not just a static thing. It's dynamic. The spirit can do what it wants to do when it wants to do it. And so even though like I still like to lead worship and sing, um, I don't, I mean, I don't, I'm not even convinced that singing songs is necessarily like a spiritual gift of sort. And well, actually that's the third thing. So, so the, the third thing, so the first thing is meeting needs. The second thing is determining your calling. The third thing is using your spiritual gift. Now, sometimes your spiritual gift can be in these other things, but I don't think that they're always those things. Sometimes, like even Paul says this, we have multiple gifts, like all of us do. We all have multiple gifts. And so, um, well, and, and he says that we should desire more. Like we should actually desire to have all the gifts. And the, the point is that just because you're gifted, spiritually gifted in one way, doesn't mean you have to do that thing. What you're called to do is the calling. But sometimes knowing what your spiritual gifts are actually help you discern what that calling is or help you discern what needs you can meet right now or whatever the case may be. So in my opinion, those are the three ways we identify how we edify the church and we bless the world. We determine the felt needs around us, like who just needs their, their mortgage paid for, um, or even just with the craziness that has happened, you know, with the Joplin Police Department right now. You know, one of the things our church is doing even right now is trying to, we're getting together a bunch of um, different baskets that have ways in which we can try to care for those who just even knew them at all and, and ultimately try to take care of those needs. And it's like literally just people... Um, Maggie put out a communication that was like, hey, we're putting out a list of names of people we know who just have any contact, they know them at all. If, if people can reach out to them, tell them we have something that we wanna give them um, and just pray, pray with them. And that's the thing, you just see a need and you meet the need. Like that's really what God has called you to do. Um, the other thing though is determining that calling, right? And so trying to figure that out. I know that's a big topic and it's one that a lot of people struggle with. I'm not a huge fan of those like spiritual gift inventory tests. Um, they just don't feel like they ever answer the question, in my opinion. I just feel like I get to the end of it. I feel like, I feel like you told me everything and you told me I could speak in tongues and I don't even know where to start with that, you know? So it's like, what do I do? Um, so hopefully that helps at least give you a sort of metric by which you can start to figure out how you can edify the church, how you can bless the world. Um, anything else before I really move on this time to eschatology? Absolutely. Yeah, you have to have a heart that is ready to serve. All right, eschatology, the study of last days. Now, the reason I put this additional, like, um, not really a definition necessarily, but a qualifier, I guess, is because I think that sometimes when we talk about eschatology, when we talk about the end days, the last days, we get really caught up in the cataclysmic details of what could happen. And that's really not the point of eschatology. The point of eschatology is the consummation of redemption history. History. When we talk about the covenant, and especially when we talk about the covenant people, when we talk about the end of history as we know it, we're talking about God finally completing all the promises he's made, which includes remaking this world back into the garden, back into that beautiful city where sin and death and suffering are totally eradicated. And so that's what we're talking about when we're talking about eschatology, the faithfulness of God being completed in its finality. And Revelation 21 through 22 gives us that really beautiful, stunning picture of what that looks like. So when will it come? When will it come? 
We don't know. That's the blank. We don't know. And I wanted to emphasize that because too many people try to figure it out. Like Jesus said he didn't know. You don't know. Nobody in this world knows. If they tell you that they know or they they have an idea, I can promise you they're lying, okay? We don't know. We don't know when the end will come. We just know that it will. And uh, when you look at some of these texts, you can. this is essentially what, what Jesus says in Matthew 24, what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, what Peter says in 2 Peter. Like, we don't know. We just know it's going to be coming a thief in the night, right? Like, it's just going to happen. And it will happen, and every single person will know. It will be loud. And that's actually what the entire, the, what Thessalonians is about. Like, Paul's writing to people who are like, did we miss it? Like, we heard that we might have missed it. Did Jesus come and we're like still here? Weren't we supposed to go somewhere or something was supposed to happen? And Paul's like, no, 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 no. Trust me, when it happens, you will know, right? It will be loud, it will be seen, and every single eye and knee will be on its knees. Like every single person will be bowing before the king. We will know when that moment comes, but we don't know when it will happen. And so that is why there are these different, um, in many ways, different interpretations of um, what the last days are like. Because what are the last days? Are they like day, last days that are really close to the moment Jesus will come? Are they last days that started when Jesus ascended into heaven? These are the debates that surround these types of questions. Now, I want to make sure this is clear. It doesn't matter which one of these positions you take, okay? It doesn't matter. Uh, I mean, it matters, I guess, in some of your beliefs, I guess, and, and then ultimately those beliefs impact who you are. But in terms of like whether you are a Christian or a part of the church or Jesus loves you, it doesn't matter, okay? But I wanted to at least give you the spectrum of which church history has, has seen what really characterizes the last days. So the first one, these are the, those million dollar, oh yeah, I, I forgot to say, millennial reign is the first blank there. What are the last days like? A millennial reign. And that is what so many disagree on, a millennial reign. So now we get into our million dollar words. The first one is dispensational premillennialism. Mouthful. But that's why I put it there for you, so that you didn't have to figure out how to spell it. What it simply means is Jesus will come. So millennial is a thousand years, right? It's a thousand. Pre is Jesus is going to come before the thousand. That's all it means. So millennials thousand, pre is Jesus is coming before. So Jesus comes before a literal thousand year reign. Jesus comes before a literal thousand years. I know that's a lot to fit into that little blank, but sometimes it's hard to gauge when, I have, when I'm doing it on my computer. So there you go. Jesus comes before a literal thousand years. <clears throat> and we'll talk about what makes that different than historic premillennialism in a moment. The next one is postmillennialism. Can you guess what that one means? Jesus comes after the thousand-year reign. Jesus comes after the thousand-year reign. Um, so historic premillennialism is that Jesus comes before a literal thousand-year reign. Same as dispensational, but we'll talk about their nuances in a moment. And amillennialism is that Jesus currently reigns in the thousand-year reign. So I don't know how, that's not a great way to say that. <laughs> the thousand year reign has started. Jesus is currently reigning. The thousand years has started. Jesus is currently reigning. Let me know. I'm, let's see, I'm, you guys are still writing, so I'm going to wait a second. Historic premillennial was Jesus comes before a literal thousand year reign. 
Okay, so I gave you this chart, um, which I think is stapled, so you'll have to, you can just maybe flip your page. Uh, we won't get to that last section for a little bit, but you might, this really does explain it, I think, pretty well. This chart also explains it, but it's a little more convoluted than I think this, this chart is. Um, but I wanted to give it to you either way because sometimes people just learn differently. Um, so <clears throat> this millennial chart explains the differences. But before we even talk about that, the one, uh, so the, the, the Bible that I did put in my notes was Revelation 21 through 10. Because this is where the millennial concept comes from. Because you're probably asking like, why are we talking about a millennial reign in general? What does that even mean? So if you turn to Revelation 21, Oh, I'm sorry, not 21, 20. If you turn to Revelation 20, 1 through 10, I'm going to read that for us. I'll give you a second. Revelation 20, 1 through 10. It says this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for... How many? A thousand years. That's where the millennial reign comes in. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Easy reading, right? So, Revelation's already a wacky book. Um, I don't know how many of you guys were with us during um, our Revelation series, but I actually th felt that that was really helpful. And in fact, Jim Dalrymple um, uh, taught on Revelation as well on Wednesday nights that, that year. I think it might have been last spring, maybe. Um, but those are available on a podcast. So if you have more questions about that, because everyone gets really interested when you start talking about Revelation. Those are always our highest attended classes. Everyone's like, I got to figure out the secrets and crack the code, you know? So everyone comes to that one. And Daniel, when we talk about the book of Daniel. Um, so I, what I want to do is unpack where some of these views come from. Because part of the question is, when is this going to happen, right? When's the thousand years coming? And that's why this, what, what, when we say, what do the last days look like? We say they look like a millennial reign. They look like uh, this time period where all these things happen and they give us the, the timeline of like when Satan's bound and when he's released and when all these wars will happen and all these different things. So here's um, what each of these different positions starts to talk about. Dispensational premillennialism basically says this. 
that the thousand years, the thousand year reign is a literal thousand years. So it's gonna be something that is actually a thousand years, 365 days, a thousand of those, right? And it says that those things are off in the future. And it talks about basically how we're gonna know some of those things. This is probably the, the theory that most of you might are familiar with because um, if you grew up in a Baptist church, especially this was, was the, this was very popular for a long time and it still is very popular. Um, and it's this idea that essentially, eventually an antichrist will come and it will start to lead people away and they'll receive this mark on their forehead and all these things will start to happen. And we as Christians will know when that stuff happens, they're like, it's coming, right? And before things get too bad, there's a rapture at that point. And, and those who are believers will be sucked up into heaven. And then for seven years, that tribulation will take place. And then after that tribulation, um, basically there will be a, a, that's when the judgment will take place. Um, or that's when the, yeah, yeah, that's when the judgment will take place. So uh, that's, that's essentially the dispensational view. Um, our church doesn't um, take that view. Um, again, it's okay if you do. This is just one of many views. Uh, and well, I'll, I'll go through all the views and then we'll see if we have time to talk about some of the pros and cons of them. The historic premillennial view is um, very similar. So the differences are, oh, I should say this too. This is a really important part of dispensational um, millennialism. So the other really important part of dis- the dispensational view is that they see the church and Israel as different. Israel, ethnic Israel, those people who still consider them, themselves to be Jewish ethnically are different than the church. And specifically what that means is they have promises that God has made to them that still have to come true. And so the church, um, they have like a new covenant's been made with the church and that's all fine and dandy, kind of what we've talked about thus far. Where they would disagree with what I've said thus far is they would say, actually, the Jews and the church are not the same. They're not a part of the same group. And Jews have promises like rebuilding of the temple that has to happen and reinstitution of sacrifices and some of those things. And so they actually see that as what will happen when that thousand year reign uh, especially will, t- will take place. And then people kind of get this new ability to like, if they didn't choose at that point, they kind of have the ability to choose if they want to. This is made popular by the Left Behind series, if you've ever heard of that book series. Um, but it also, the reason why it's gained so much ground actually in America specifically is because it was a part of um, uh, the Schofield Study Bible, if you've ever heard of that. The Schofield Study Bible is like one of the first study Bibles. How many of you guys have a study Bible? Most of you? So the study Bibles, they have notes in them, right? They have commentary. The Schofield Study Bible was one of the first study Bibles that was, that was going around in America, and it had this theory in it. And so most people adopted that theory just simply by being taught through that study Bible, which is why um, whether you think that's right or wrong, we should be careful to not just accept whatever our study Bible says, right? Always making sure we're, we're measuring the scriptures and making sure that they say what they say and all those things. Um, but that's an important part. So the historic premillennial view is they would say the church and Israel are the same. The church and Israel are the same. And they're actually, there's no rapture. The historic premillennial view does not think that there's a rapture, but they do believe that there's a thousand year reign. And so what they believe is that eventually God will come like a thief in the night and ultimately all, everyone will meet him in the sky, but then they'll come back down to earth. And so it's, a, it's not exactly a rapture because they're not being taken out of the world. 
they're essentially, they're coming to live in the world, but with all of these resurrect, all of the believers who have, who have been resurrected into that point. And then there's a thousand year reign of Jesus. And then at the end of the thousand years is when the final judgment is. And so basically that's when um, all the unbelievers will de- determine what they want to do. But also at the end of the thousand years, um, all the unbelievers will be resurrected that had died up until that point as well. And that, that's when the great throne judgment is. Um, if you remember that, it talks about that in Matthew 25, talks about that in Revelation 20 as well. If you were to kept, keep reading in Revelation 20, you'd get to the great white throne judgment. And that's where that happens. Um, postmillennialism is really an interesting one. This one is actually that it has a really optimistic view of history. So what it says is, there's two different views. One is that the, the, the millennial is literal, but some people just think it's actually um, more of an era as well, not necessarily a literal one, but it doesn't really matter either way. Basically what they say is when Jesus ascended, that the world is just like, it's, it's getting better and better as it goes. And as time goes on, the world will just continue to become more sanctified. More and more people will come to know Jesus. And over time, the whole world will know Jesus. And then eventually Jesus will come back and, what, and he'll reign for maybe a thousand years or, you know, if it's not a literal thousand years, either way, but that will kind of just like blend. Time will essentially blend into that thousand years and it will ultimately end up into the new world that God has desired for it to be in. And all millennialism believes that when Jesus ascended, that thousand year reign began at that point and they don't see it as a literal thousand years. It's more of a metaphor. And the reason that, part of the reason they, they would say that about the thousand years is that a metaphor, it's not literal, is because if you were here when we were talking through Revelation, is that almost every number in Revelation is symbolic. And so when it talks about the thousand years, it's not trying to be literal, it's trying to be um, more descriptive poetically. It's more like a song than a novel. It's more trying to describe in vivid um, picture um, what is actually taking place. And so they would say that ultimately when Jesus rose from the dead, that, that, that kingdom started and eventually he's going to come back and it's just going to be, it's going to be over like a thief in the night, that type of idea. So I know that these are big concepts. Um, there are many concepts and I'm going to talk through, let's see what time it is. I'm going to talk through why our church takes the all-millennial approach but then I want to answer any questions that you guys have about any of this as a whole, because not every one of you may have the amillennial approach. But this is why our church takes the amillennial approach. The first one is that Jesus is constantly teaching that the kingdom is at hand, that the kingdom is currently present. The kingdom is at hand. Matthew 3, 2 being one of those verses where we see that. But obviously that's, you know, even as we talk through Matthew right now, you probably, that's probably been pretty clear. Jesus is saying the kingdom is at hand, repent, right? The kingdom is here. Um, the king is here. The next reason is because salvation is complete. We're not waiting for something else to happen to accomplish it. Salvation was completed with Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, which is what I think you kind of see when you look at these passages, Acts 2, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, Hebrews 1, 1 Peter 1. These are talking about like when Jesus basically accomplished all that he came to do. He sat down on his throne. He sat down from his high priestly duties. What he did was accomplished in that moment. And so he, he doesn't have to come back and do more things. When he comes back, it's gonna be just the end of it. The other thing is because we believe that the last days are right now. We believe scripture teaches that the last days have already started. 
Acts 2, 16 through 21 alludes to this. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Um, that's probably the biggest one. It says, but in these last days, you have spoken to us by your son, Jesus, right? It said before you have spoken to us through the prophets and through the law, but in the last days, you've spoken to us through your son. And so we actually think that scripture teaches we're in the last days. And it might feel long to you, but what do we know? Well, what does Peter tell us, right? That to God, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. Time is not the same to God as it is to us. So we believe that we're actually in the last days. Um, the other one is Jesus is enthroned. Oh, I switched those. Sal- the salvation complete one more has to do with what he has accomplished in disarming the powers of sin and death and all those things. Um, Jesus is enthroned is the fact that he's already seated on his throne. He's already, he's already sitting at the right hand of the Father. His work is complete. The next one is that souls already enjoy God. Souls already enjoy God, which means we're not waiting for a resurrection to happen where like there's a first resurrection of believers to go enjoy God. What does Jesus say to the thief? Today you'll be with me in paradise, right? And Paul talks about in some of his epistles, it's better for me to be with the Lord than it is to be in the body. He says, but I'm in the body because I know it's better for you for me to be in the body. And so this idea that like when we die, we go straight to the throne room is this idea that, that that's already taking place. Life's already breaking out in that way. And then the last one is literalist problems. Literalist problems. Literalist problems. Now, what that means is that, um, especially dispensational premillennialism, I would say probably more than any of the others, but dispensational premillennialism, they, they take a strictly literal interpretation of Scripture. And so the dates that they get, the ideas that they get of the tribulation and the, the time periods and the thousand-year reigns and like all of those things are all a very strictly literal interpretation. And we as a church tend to find problems with that interpretation. And I pointed out just a couple, uh, like for instance, the Old Testament requirements. Like if it was a literal interpretation, there would be some issues there in terms of how we practice as covenant people. Um, Matthew 5, 27 through 30 talks about cutting off whatever it ma- does make you sin. Uh, you know, cuts off, cut off your hand, cut off, you know, if, if you struggle with sexual sin, that means cut off the things that are making you struggle with sexual sin. We don't take that strictly literal, right? Um, and then the other one is Revelation 8, 7 through 9, 4, or not through 9, 4, 8, 7 and 9, 4. And Revelation 8, 7, it talks about the fact that all the, like, it's when all these, you know, plagues and trumpets and all these things are, are happening. And it talks about how the grass on the entire earth is burned up. But if you go two trumpets forward, there's grass again. Well, it can't be taken literally if there's grass again, right? They talks about how at that point, a third of the grass gets burned up. Well, how can a third of the grass get burned up if all the grass was burned up back here? I think it's, it's something along those lines. Or no, what it says is in nine, what it says in nine, four is, but they weren't allowed to touch the grass or something in there. But it's like, well, the grass is all burned up. So, so it's those literalist, strictly literalist, right? Interpretations that end up, I think, kind of making that, that interpretation clunky. Um, and so what, what the amillennial position would say is we have to interpret the Bible in the ways in which it would have been written at the time, at the place, to the people it was being written to, which means considering the genre. Right. So, for instance, if I'm reading a newspaper and I see that the tigers, um, 
mauled the commanders, you know, then um, if, I, if I'm in the sports section, well, that obviously means we're talking about like football. If we're talking about like the Bengals, you know, getting the commanders, right? But if we're talking about like international news, all of a sudden we're like, oh my gosh, what happened? How did the Tigers get out? You know, if we're talking about, uh, you know, our local city, we're like, how did the Tigers get out of the zoo? You know, and so again, our context matters. And so the genre matters. So all of that matters. And what we would say about Revelation is that this book is really not unique to its time. It's unique to us, but the genre is actually very, um, it's prevalent through the time when it was written. And it was, it's called apocalyptic genre. And so it's not a letter to a church like Paul's writing in his epistles. It's not a gospel account, like a biography, like what the, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were writing. It's apocalyptic. It has apocalyptic imagery in it. And what that means is that you're not supposed to take it literally, um, strictly, but that you're supposed to read it in the ways in which it was, it was designed to be understood. Um, not necessarily in the ways that we think it has to be read in our American context. And part of the reason why we would tend to reject the dispensational view too is that it's actually the newest to, um, to like the church as a whole. It's only come about in the last 200 years. And so pretty much anything that's that new, the church doesn't usually change its mind on over the course of you know 2,000 years. That's not usually going to happen. Um, and so when we look at historic premillennialism, amillennialism, those two especially, we have interpretations that go all the way back to people like Irenaeus, Augustine, um, people who were, who were, you know, very far back. And so um, when we look at dispensationalism, that one's a little bit hard to grab because we're like, really, like 2,000 years later and now you got it right? You know, it seems a little suspect. Um, but historic premillennialism it is actually very, very similar to amillennialism besides that literal thousand-year reign. That's like almost the only difference is that literal thousand-year reign. Um, but other than that, it's very, very similar. All right, that was a lot of information, I know, but questions about any of that? Well, <clears throat> not necessarily. That's what the tribulation, the tribulation enables a chance for those left to get to determine where they want to go, what they want to do. And if I, re- if I saw that happen, I'd be like, I believe <laughs> I'll, I'll take that, <laughs> you know? So, but that's, that's part, that's in part why. And the, the covenant promises to Israel still have to be fulfilled as well. And so that's also a part of it. In what? Hmm. Yes, they do. Now, there are, so there are differences of, of opinion of when the tribulation happens or when the rapture happens in the tribulation. All the dispensational premillennial views, at least that I know of, take the view that there's going to be a seven-year tribulation. But not all of them think that the rapture is going to happen at the beginning of it. Some think it's going to happen in the middle and some think it's going to happen at the end. And so it just kind of depends on some of the differences of interpretation there. Any other questions? Right. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And I think that's part of the implications, I think, at some level, too. 
of some of these beliefs is that they obviously, they will impact how you see the world, how you live in the world right now um, as well. You know, for instance, if you just think post-millennialism, if you think things are getting better, like that's going to change how you live in the world. That's going to change your outlook. That's going to change how you address people in general. Um, Whereas if you think that there's going to be a tribulation coming, you're going to be looking for like catastrophe and cataclysmic events that show that like Jesus is about to come and I need to get my act together or now is the time to go evangelize or now, you know. Um, and so it does impact, you know, how we see those things. The all-millennial approach, same thing. It's like if we think the thousand-year reign started, we just need to like be reigning with God in the ways in which he's already doing so and know that like at any moment he could come. And so we need to be we need to be servants in the act, right? Not waiting, ho- like that's what the parables even in Matthew, near Matthew 24 into 25 um, are all about are these parables where at one level, you know, the master, or if he says, if you knew what time the thief was going to come, you would have stayed up all night. Um, the next one's about the virgins. And because basically they didn't have enough oil for their lamps. And it said, you thought he was going to come back sooner, but he didn't. And so now he came back later and you weren't ready for it, except for the five of them were and five of them weren't. And so he's basically, Matthew is showing, or really Jesus is talking this, Matthew's recording it. Jesus is showing, don't think it's not going to be sooner rather than later. But he's also saying, but don't assume that it's going to be later rather than sooner. And then ultimately what he says is, whatever I've given you, even in terms of like talents, whatever I've given you in terms of things that I want you to do, I'm trying to, you need to invest it. If I show up and I've given you these gifts, these callings, these abilities, and you haven't used them at all, you've produced nothing. Oh, that's not going to be good. That's not going to be good for you. And then he kind of ends Matthew 25 with this idea of this, again, the throne, the judgment, and he separates the sheep and the goats. Um, which we're actually going to talk about in like three weeks, I think. Um, we'll preach on that one. So um, there's, yeah, there's no time. There's no reason to wait, <laughs> right? Like, and there's no reason to want to, right? Like we're not talking about just trying to get into heaven. We're talking about the fact that heaven has already gotten into us. We're living with God right now. And we're not waiting for just eternity. We're living already in eternity. We just have perishable, body, perishable bodies still. And so death bodies will still do death things, but God's like sanctifying it. He's seeing it through. And eventually like we'll be with him forever. And that's the whole point. Any other questions about any of this? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, I've always believed in the I'm going to say that on death. That's okay. I don't think so either. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that one. <laughs> where do you know where? Do you know the scripture references? I'm trying to think of what you're talking about. No, you don't have to shut up. Yeah, well, that's in Ezekiel when it talks about that. Um, 
I'm not sure. You should look it up and and put and ask ask it next week. That's a great question to ask. Yeah. What's that? First John? I can't remember off the top of my head, but I believe you. <laughs> you should look that up too. <laughs> Anything else? Any questions about this at all? Are you afraid to ask questions? Because you're like, I'm on a stream and I don't want to look silly. So, Well, the good news is that that's what your cards are for. All right. So write some questions on those cards. This is the last night that we're going to have specific things like this. And uh, we will we'll go through those questions next week. So sound good? All right, before we go, before I lose you guys, I want to pray for you. And I'll say this too. Absolutely more important than anything else when we talk about, especially when it comes to the end times, is that we are people who recognize that Jesus is coming. Every single view recognizes Jesus is coming. And there's no reason why we shouldn't both enjoy this life and use it totally for his purposes and his purposes only. And that's really what all these views are calling us to do at some level. So I want to pray for you, especially as we consider that, especially in light of God's church and in light of his world. Let's pray. Father God, you are holy and good. We pray that you'd continue to help us um, just be changed by your spirit. And God, that we could understand our calling, our, our, uh, our ability to step into the space and just be with people, help people. God, experience the gospel. God, it is the power of salvation for all who believe. And God, we pray that resurrection would again already start breaking out in our lives as we overcome sin and death. And Father, as we wait for you to to complete those promises in fulfillment. Lord, we love you. It's in your son's name, Jesus, we pray through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks, guys. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christchurch, visit us online at cco.church.